Please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be looking at this uh, Good Samaritan parable this morning. Uh, You know, I I vividly remember the last time I was preparing to speak on this passage. It was probably about maybe 10 years ago, and it was in the summertime, and I remember I was uh, at my office and I was working on the sermon, and when I finished working on the sermon, I actually had a hockey game, so I I drove over toward the hockey rink, and I was running a little bit late because my, my, I'd kind of gotten into my sermon prep. Uh, so I'm driving over toward the rink, running late to my, my game, and uh, along the road I saw this, this dad and his daughter in their bathing suits walking along the road. And I remember thinking, mm, you know, something's just not right about that. They're probably, you know, there, there's something distressing about that. They probably need some help, whatever. So, you know, I did what I had to do. I, I slowed down. I rolled down my window and I said, uh, hey, next Sunday I'm going to be doing a sermon on Sermon on the Mount. You should come, right? No, I, I didn't. I actually, I stopped the car and I, and I let them in. And um, they were, in fact, they'd uh, run out of gas and they were walking to their house. And it was quite a, quite a walk. And so I helped them out. But I will confess, I was, I was a reluctant Good Samaritan in that moment, right? I was a, I was a bit of a reluctant neighbor. I didn't really want to stop because, um, you know, it, it costs you time, right? It, it's an inconvenience when you have to stop and help somebody out. But um, we all want to be good neighbors, right? Sometimes it's difficult to be a good neighbor. Uh, I have some friends who told me that they would love to know their neighbors, but they can't meet their neighbors, right? So literally they said their neighbors drive home, hit the garage door opener, garage door goes up, they drive their car in, garage door goes down, right? And they said, the only time we can possibly meet our neighbors is if we look out the window and we time it right and we go to our mailbox at the same time, right? They don't want to be known. They don't want to be, they don't want to meet us, right? This is a really challenging situation. So one of the things I found uh, kind of an interesting phenomenon recently is um, so many people have more virtual neighbors than actual neighbors, right? There's more virtual neighborhood connections, but now we've begun to use our, our digital neighborhood world to try to create an actual neighbor world. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, this app, Nextdoor. Right? If you're under 25, you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Maybe you saw it on your parents' phone, but uh, this, is a, this is an app that's been out for a couple of years, uh, trying to create neighborhoods out of right, our digital relationships. And uh, so our neighbors, we all got on this thing a few years ago, but it doesn't always work well, right? Uh, I actually took a few screenshots to share with you. This is from the, the app uh, Nextdoor, and these are legit, right? These are real. The title of this one is Illegal Chinese New Year Fireworks. Don't forget to report your neighbors using illegal fireworks this Chinese New Year, right? And that, this, is, this is really, this is legit. And I love the comment, wow, it truly is the year of the rat. <laughs> That's good, right? Here's another one. Uh, please help, I'm out of butter. Please drop a stick at the corner of between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. today. I don't want to meet people. I don't want new friends. I just need butter. Butter's important to me. (laughs) You think I'm making it up. I'm not. Like, these are some of the tamer ones. People get seriously nasty on this. Now, uh, here's here's an analog illustration. Quit slamming your car doors late at night. There's a noise ordinance, stupid neighbors. (laughs) Yeah, uh, you know and if I'm honest, I've, I have felt that before. I remember we had some neighbors who had a really uh, yippy dog, right? Bark, 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 bark all the time. And I remember thinking, um, so I really don't like cats. Barking dogs are somewhere in that same spectrum, right? Just beep, 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 all the time, barking, barking. So uh, one weekend they left town and they forgot to put their dog indoors. They left their dog outside all weekend long, right? So their dog all weekend long is bark, 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 just yep, 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 yep. And I will confess, 
I did think about harming their dog. Right? I, did, I was like, hmm, what could I get away with, right? I mean, I, I wasn't too serious, but I was kind of serious. Ah, it's hard to be a neighbor. Right? It's hard to be a good neighbor because it, it costs you something. But what would it look like if we, as followers of Jesus, said, you know, we really want to connect with our neighbors. We're going we're gonna to rearrange our lives. We're going to take on that inconvenience to reflect the love of Jesus to our neighbors. Jesus told a parable about this. Uh, it's one of the more famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which he answers that question. So I want you to read with me Luke chapter 10. If you're not already there, we're going to read beginning in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. What does it look like to be a good neighbor? It says, And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as we work through this parable, you're going to notice there there are three questions and three answers that are given in the course of this dialogue. The first question is this, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's posed to Jesus by a man who's described as an expert in the law, so probably a Pharisee. Quite likely, he was a professional theologian, didn't work, just sat around all day and discussed and debated theology with his friends. And he's asking Jesus a question that he and his friends have talked about a lot, right? This is a question that, that really kind of ran the circles in Jesus' day all the time. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, one of the verses related to this discussion, it says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So in Jesus' day, there was a pretty well-developed eschatology or, or theology of end times events. And there was consensus that the Messiah would return, and when he returned, there would be a general resurrection. Everybody would be raised. Some would be raised to everlasting life, and they would enter the kingdom of the Messiah. And others would be raised, but they would be raised to rejection from Messiah, and they wouldn't be a part of his kingdom. And so the discussion was this, how do I get into Messiah's kingdom? When he returns and he, he creates a resurrection, how can I be resurrected into his kingdom and enjoy all of the blessings and the benefits. And so he poses this question that he and his friends have been discussing and debating probably for years to Jesus, kind of this fundamental question, how do I get in? Right? How do I get in? And Jesus, rather than immediately answering in, in really good Socratic method, he turns around and he puts the question back to this expert in the law. Notice verse 26. So Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Are you You're an expert in the law, and we share this understanding that the law is authoritative in our lives. So what do you think? How does it read to you? And so the expert in the law answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember Jesus has given this answer before as well, right? He says that... On these two commandments hang the entire law and prophets. Jesus says this is a synthesis statement of all of the law. So what is the answer? Well, love God and love others perfectly. That's the whole law. You, you really you want to get in? You want to be in Messiah's kingdom? You want to, to inherit eternal life? All that you have to do is obey all of the law perfectly, or in shorthand, love God and love others perfectly. That's it. That's the only requirement. That's all you've got to do. Verse 28, so Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, I've given that answer myself before, so do this and you will live. Now, just, you see the tension here. 
Is Jesus actually saying to him, if you obey the law perfectly, if you love God perfectly, and if you love others perfectly, you can, in fact, earn eternal life? Is Jesus saying that to him? Theoretically, yes, right? Theoretically, this is true of everyone. Actually, it's true of no one, right? Jesus is he's setting him up, right? As Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous. There's not even one. If the standard to get in is absolute perfection, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? No one's going to actually reach this standard. And so Jesus is allowing out of the man's own mouth for the man to set himself up. This is the same thing that he did with the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler came and he asked Jesus a question? Remember what the question was? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Rich young ruler asked exactly the same question. And Jesus said, oh, that's very simple, right? Um, don't, don't lie, don't, don't steal, don't commit a murder, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, awesome, I have done all of that since the time I was a child. And Jesus says, way to go. Oh, wait, I forgot. One more thing. Uh, Go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and come follow me, and then you can have eternal life. Was Jesus telling the rich young ruler that if he sold everything, he could earn eternal life? No, Jesus is setting him up, right? Because he knows the rich young ruler has broken the commandment, thou shalt not covet, every day of his life because he loves his stuff. So he's, he's using this righteous standard of God to reveal what's actually broken in the man's heart. And so at that point in time, the rich young ruler should have said, I covet, I've broken the law, I'm guilty of one point, therefore I'm guilty of all. Jesus, can you help me? But instead, what does he do? He says he just walks away sad. Walks away sad. This man, at this point in time, this expert in the law, should have said to Jesus, you know, I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I don't love my neighbor as myself. He should have been broken before the Lord because if we actually understand the righteous requirement of God for eternal life, none of us measure up and we fall on our knees before Jesus and say, help me. And Jesus gladly says, I have helped you. I want to give you the perfection of Jesus. In place of your brokenness, I'm going to give you Jesus as a gift. You can't actually earn eternal life because you can't achieve perfection. But my son has achieved perfection and I'll give you his perfection in place of your imperfection and unrighteousness. It's a gift. It's a gift, right? That's the gospel. And this morning, if you have never responded to that, please don't walk out of here after hearing this parable of the Good Samaritan saying to yourself, I just need to do more, because you don't. You don't. The first thing that you need to do is say, God, I, I can't do enough. Thank you for Jesus. Just start there. Or just start there. Because after you receive the free gift of eternal life, God, through the power of his spirit, begins to transform your affections and give you the strength and the courage to, to reach out and to love others, to give because you've received so richly in Christ. But if, if you just say, walk out here and say, I just need to do more, then what's going to happen is you're either going to feel proud, well, I've done more than other people around me, or you're going to feel fear, wondering, have I done enough? But if you start with receiving from Jesus, then you can walk out of here with courage and strength to say, I have something to give to others because I've received so richly from Jesus, right? And then we can become neighbors who supernaturally love, right? Not, we don't just try. We love in such a way that our neighbors say, wow, why do you do that? And we say, it's nothing about me. It's Jesus, right? All the credit to Jesus. That, that's how our neighbors actually need to be loved, in a supernatural way that really isn't explained by us being kind of good people.
right? So his first question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is, which he gives himself, love God and love others perfectly, at which point in time he should have said, I don't do that, please help, right? And then the conversation would have gone another direction. Instead, he asks a second question, he says, so who is my neighbor? So who is my neighbor? Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, so who exactly is my neighbor? You see what he's doing? He's deflecting here. Rather than saying, I can't love God perfectly, I don't love others perfectly, he tries to lower the bar and say, so what's the bare minimum I have to do? Who's my neighbor and who's not my neighbor? Who am I obligated to and who am I not obligated to? Now, Jesus' answer is essentially this. Your neighbor is anyone who's near and in need. What Jesus will say to him essentially is this. You can't, you can't set limits. Your neighbor is anyone who's near and in need. Now, Jesus is going to explain this through a parable. He doesn't answer directly. Instead, he says, you know what? Let me tell you a story. Right? Let me tell you a story. Verse 31. So Jesus replied and he said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay? Literally, he says, a certain man, any man, doesn't matter who the man is. He doesn't, he doesn't tell where he's from. He doesn't tell his name because it doesn't really matter, right? Why? Because you can't set limits. Right? So a certain man, any man, this man, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that same road. Uh, fate would have it, is how it reads. Right? It, this, it just happened. Man, this is this man's lucky day because there's a priest. If anyone measures up to God's righteous standard of loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor as self, certainly it's a priest, right? Because the priests are the most righteous people in that society. They're, they're the religious people. They're the ones who, who stand in the presence of God and they mediate God's blessings to the people and they offer the sacrifices, right? So it's like, oh my goodness, as the original audience is hearing this for the very first time, they think, thank goodness, this lucky man, this is, this is his fortunate day. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Ooh. So as people heard this for the very first time, their hopes were raised. They're like, oh my gosh, perfect. This lucky man, a priest is there. Ooh. That's not what we expected the priest to do. Oh, wait, but there's more hope. Likewise, a Levite also, and Levites were the assistants to the priest, right? They helped the priests do priestly duties. They, they managed the, the utensils and they helped sacrifice the, the animals, right? If there were priests as the most spiritual and most righteous people, then there were Levites right below this. So, okay, good, a, a Levite is passing by. But when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, is there hope? But a Samaritan who was on a journey, he came upon him. And right now you should, you know, you can even just like write this in your margins because if Jesus is telling the story, you could hear boo, hiss, Samaritans, bad, right? Jews literally hated Samaritans, right? Hated, hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans in their minds were completely impure people. Their history, if you'll recall, there, there, were, uh, there was a divided kingdom, right? Initially there was the kingdom of Israel, then it divided north and south, the northern tribes, there were 10 of them, they were called Israel, the southern two tribes were called Judah, 
Uh, and the northern tribes were taken away into captivity in 722 BC by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians took them into uh, captivity, and, but they didn't take the whole population. They left some Jews there, and then they imported other captive people into the area so that they would intermarry and not rise up in rebellion against the Assyrians. So th- this group who's in Samaria, they're part Jewish and part a mixed racial group from other nations, and the Jews absolutely and utterly despised them because they weren't pure Jews. And their worship wasn't pure. They didn't go down to Jerusalem to worship. They stayed at Mount Gerizim. They said, this is where we're going to worship. And they didn't accept the whole Old Testament, only the first five books of the Bible, right? So their worship wasn't pure. Their race wasn't pure. And they were known to the Jews as completely unreliable people. Listen to this description from Josephus, the Jewish general and historian. He said, And when the Samaritans see the Jews in prosperity, they pretend that they are changed and allied to them and call them kinsmen, as though they were derived from Joseph and had by that means an original alliance with the Jews. But when they see the Jews falling into a low condition, they say they are no way related to them, that the Jews have no right to expect any kindness or marks of kindred from them, but they declare that they are sojourners that come from other countries. You know what Josephus says? You can't count on a Samaritan. Right? If you're wealthy, if you're a wealthy Jew, well, then the Samaritans would say, hey, we're, we're brothers. We're related because we're descended from Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. But if a Jew, Jew is struggling, a Samaritan will not help him out. You cannot trust the Samaritan. So, so first there's the pre- priest. You know, he doesn't show up. He just goes on the other side. Then a Levite. Is there hope? No, Levite goes. And then Jesus says, there's a Samaritan. And the crowd's going, boo, his Samaritans, they're evil, they're bad. Right? But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. He was, he was moved in his inward parts. And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Samaritans, he's the hero. At this point in time, it's it's silent. What did the lawyer been trying to do? He, He was trying to lower the standard. So he could demonstrate that he was righteous, right? That he'd met the standard, that he didn't, he didn't need to change anything about his life. He didn't need to have his life disrupted in any way. He had done enough. Who's my neighbor? Who's not my neighbor? And Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. Anyone who's near and in need. Right? But he doesn't want to do anymore. He doesn't want to give anymore. Why? Because it's costly to be a good neighbor. It's going to cost you something to be a good neighbor. Neighbors who are in need, they take your time. They take your time. If you're going to genuinely be a good neighbor, it's, it's going to cause you to, to change and alter your schedule. This Samaritan's on a journey. He's almost certainly a merchant. This is a heavy commercial pathway. And what does he do? He stops. He, he gives his most valuable commodity. He stops. And then he eventually gets the man to an inn. He spends the entire night with the man, bandaging up his wounds. He gives him time. He promises to return. He gives him time. There was a fascinating study that was done in the 70s with um, seminary students from Princeton. 
And what the researchers were trying to determine is why people do good works. Right? What's the motivation behind it? And they thought, well, greatest place for us to start and do this research is with a bunch of do-gooders, right? Seminary students. We'll start with people who kind of have to do good works, right? So they gave them a series of surveys. And what they're trying to discover in the surveys is, is why do you do what you do? Are you intrinsically motivated, right, or extrinsically motivated? And intrinsic motivation would be your, your love for God and your love for people. Extrinsic would be uh, you're afraid of punishment and you want to go to heaven, Right? So there's, there's an extrinsic factor, intrinsic. So they gave them a series of survey questions. And at the end of the survey questions, they had them read the story of the Good Samaritan and create a short talk, right? about a 10-minute talk on the Good Samaritan. Right? So they're thinking about good deeds. Right? They've just taken surveys. Why do you good, do good deeds? And they're drilling down into motivations for good deeds. They've just read the story of the Good Samaritan. Now they've put together a talk on the Good Samaritan. And then the researchers said, okay, here's what you need to do next. Uh, you're going to go to a, a, an adjacent building over here, you know, near, nearby on campus, uh, and you're going to deliver that talk. You're going to give a talk on the Good Samaritan. And they told the people, they broke them up into three different groups. Uh, a third of the folks, they said, um, you're kind of running short on time. Right. We, the survey went a little bit long, so you need to hustle and get over there. Second group said, you're right on time. Uh, just, you know, you need, need to get going, but you're right on time. We're good. Um, and then the third group, they said, you've got plenty of time. Right? Survey didn't take that long. You've got plenty of time. So each group left, and here was the wrinkle. Uh, on the way to the other building, they had to go through an alley, and in the alley, they placed a man who was injured. So the guy's laying there in the alley, he's injured, and the, 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 the alley is so narrow that literally if they're going to get past him, they have to step over him. Seminary students, right? 40% stopped. Okay, only 40% stopped. 60% of seminary students, after putting in surveys on doing good deeds to others, after studying the passage on the Good Samaritan, after putting together a talk on the Good Samaritan, stepped over the injured man and did nothing for him. Can you imagine? And what they discovered is the only relevant variable was not whether your motivation was intrinsic or extrinsic, but just do you think you have time? Right? The people who stopped were the ones who, who were told, you don't have a lot of time pressure. Now, this is crazy. I'm not making this up. But the first time I put together a talk on the Good Samaritan was for a seminary class. I had to deliver a talk in a preaching class where I was going to be graded on my talk on the Good Samaritan. And as I was going to class, uh, Dallas Seminary is not in a great neighborhood, and I was stopped by a street person asking for help on my way to deliver a talk on the Good Samaritan, right? Not making this up. So, you know, of course, I did what I had to do. I stopped and I took him to a meal. And, you know, I missed class, and I got a terrible grade, but I led him to Christ, and he's now a missionary. Totally made that up. That's none of that. That's, I did get stopped, and I gave him a little bit of money, and then I ran to class to do my sermon. And I prayed the whole time. I said, Lord, let me, let me see him again so I don't feel guilty. <laughs> but I didn't actually stop to help him in that moment. Right? Time. Needy neighbors cost time. Needy neighbors often cost money. The Samaritan stopped and he used his own resources. He used his oil to soothe the wound. He used the wine to purify the wound. He probably had to tear up one of his garments 
to make bandages. He put the man in an inn, and he paid two denarii, which is roughly uh, 24 days' worth of room and board. He promised he would return, and if the man incurred any more debt, he would pay it himself. He couldn't expect to be paid back, right? Because the man had been robbed. It, It costs time to help a neighbor. It costs money to help a neighbor. Often it costs physical effort or exertion. Uh, This is a picture of what's known as the Pass of Adumim. Uh, It's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? Jerusalem is on a ridge, and it's at about 2,600 feet above sea level. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level, right? So it's a 3,400-foot descent over the course of 17 miles. Uh, This is a picture in the background of uh, St. George's Monastery, but there were no monasteries, there were no inns, there was nothing. If you decided you wanted to go on this pathway, you had to make it the entire way in one day, 17 miles. So he comes upon the man who's injured, who has no food, he's got no clothing, he's got no animal. He, he takes the time in, in the mess and he cleans his wounds himself personally. And then he puts the man on his own beast of burden, his own donkey, and he has to walk the rest of the way. This is a 17-mile journey. And he puts his own life at great risk. Notice the pathway. This was known as uh, the red and bloody way. The red and bloody way. Because there were bandits all along the way. Right? All along the way. They would hide behind corners. They would, they would get up in the caves. Uh, they would put blood on one of their own members and lay him in the ground. So when people stopped, they could jump in and ambush. Right? This was exceptionally dangerous for the Samaritan to stop. The Samaritan had a lot of good reasons not to stop. He could have said in addition, he could have said, you know, no Jew would stop for me. And he would have been right. But he stopped anyway. Right? He stopped anyway. Why? Because a neighbor is anyone who's near and in need. The lawyer is trying to set limits. <laughs> who do I have to say yes to? And who can I say no to? And Jesus says, no, a neighbor's Anyone, a certain man, any man, it doesn't matter what his name is, doesn't matter where he came from, doesn't matter the level of need. In fact, what Jesus does is he says, you're, you're really asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? Where do I set limits? The question is this, who proved to be a neighbor? Read with me verse 36. Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? In other words, the question is not where do I set the limits, but where do I look for the opportunities? Who proved to be a neighbor to him? The answer he gives here in verse 37, he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said, go do the same thing. So the answer is the one who showed mercy. Now, does anything strike you interesting about the answer that he gave? He couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan, right? The answer is the Samaritan. He, can't, he cannot even say the Samaritan, he says, the one who showed mercy. Who proved to be the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. The one who didn't set the limits, but who looked for the opportunities. So I have a fourth question for you. It's this. Uh, are you a good neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? So I think the biggest barrier for us is that we are really, we're, we're tight on time and we're tight on resources. And we're overwhelmed by the sense of need. Uh, if, you, if you watch the news ever at all, there's always a new crisis that's going to overwhelm and destroy the world. It's, you know, it's 
uh, climate change or coronavirus. Or, I mean, it's just always going to be something, and it's just overwhelming. And, and it's so overwhelming given our time constraints and our money and our resources that we say, you know, I can't do it all. <laughs> you know, you're right, you can't. You cannot do it all. But you can do something. Right? It's my first exhortation here. You can do something. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. Do something. Do something. There, there are a few lessons to learn from this story. The first is this. Anyone can be a neighbor. Jesus cho- chose a Samaritan, right? Because the people who are Jewish audience, they have to say at the end of the story, well, if a Samaritan, Samaritan can do it, well, I guess I can do it too, right? Anyone can be a neighbor. If you first have received from Jesus. I, I really don't want you to walk out if you're just saying, I need to do more. Because if, if you walk out with that as the application, then you're just you're going to get compulsive because you want to prove something. And you're going to feel pride because you do more than other people. Or you're going to feel fear that maybe you haven't done enough. That's not it. Right? That's not it. In fact, when Jesus was um, given the Sermon on the Mount, he set this crazy impossible standard. He said, uh, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when the people heard that, they should have said, I can't, Jesus, help me. And then he would have said, sure, I can. But I can help you. Because once you've received the love of God through Jesus Christ, it transforms your abilities and it transforms your motivation. And you walk out and say, uh, I want to do good. And I want to do good in a way uh, that demonstrates the power of Christ in my life, not prove something about me. Right? And anyone who's a follower of Christ can do that by the power of the Spirit. Not, not just go out and do good. Right, but do it by the power of the Spirit. Anyone can be a neighbor and become a good neighbor. Second lesson is this. Uh, I think everyone should be a neighbor. Romans 1 verse 14, Paul wrote, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Uh, Paul says I'm a debtor because I've been enriched by Jesus. But it's not a debt you can pay back. It's just a debt you carry for the rest of your life. Right? You can't pay it back because even if you gave your entire life, it would not be adequate to pay back God giving the life of his son, Jesus. You don't pay it back. It's just a debt you carry because everything that you have in life is a gift from God. Your time, now it's God's time. Your money, now it's God's money. Your energy, now it's God's energy. Right? You're just a steward of these things. Having received richly, you give back. Right? So anybody can be a neighbor. I think everybody should be a neighbor, and everyone needs a neighbor. It was Seneca who said, Wherever there's a human being, there's an opportunity for kindness. Just, just lift up your eyes, and if you get close to people, just scratch below the surface. Folks come in, and they're, they're, they're dressed nicely, and their hair is done. But when you just begin to love a little bit and get into people's lives, you're going to discover there's, there's a lot of brokenness, and there's a lot of need. And everybody has a need. Everybody needs a neighbor. Everybody needs to be loved. Uh, just a few years back, ABC News ran the same experiment that had been done with the seminary students in Princeton. Same experiment, but uh, they added a little wrinkle. So they went through the surveys trying to uncover people's motivation as intrinsic or extrinsic. They had them read the Good Samaritan parable. They had them put together a talk on the Good Samaritan. But this time, as they walked uh, down uh, an alleyway, what they did is they, they, they passed sometimes a white man and sometimes a black man. Right, so they threw in a wrinkle in. They threw in the wrinkle of race. They wanted to see if it would affect the outcomes at all. And um, you know what happened is that people stopped three times more for the white man than they stopped for the black man. 
or maybe all kinds of thoughts are running through your head right now. Uh, the black man was, uh, had a really clean, neat haircut. He was wearing a polo shirt and nice shorts. Okay? So three times more likely for people to stop for the white man and the black man. And it didn't matter if the participant was white or black. Three times more likely people stop for the white man and the black man. Now, right, right now, some of you are feeling a little uncomfortable the reason for that is uh, because last night I prayed that God would help me make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> right? I said, Lord, let me, help, me, help me make everyone feel a little bit uncomfortable tomorrow. Because race is still a really significant issue in our country in case you have not been paying attention to what's actually happening in our nation. But it would be a complete travesty and disservice for me to ignore race because race is at the very center of this story. Jesus infused race into this story. Jews hated Samaritans. Hated Samaritans. In fact, for Jews who lived in Galilee, they were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. The most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem was along what's called the Central Ridge Route, which would take them straight through Samaria. But they hated the Samaritans so badly that they would go all the way out to the Jordan Valley and they would come up through this route called the Red and Bloody Way and they would risk their lives rather than have to get close to Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans that much, right? We're not the first people who have wrestled with the problem of the conflict and hatred with race. It has been in existence since the dawn of human history. But church, we need to have courage to enter into those conversations. Because we hold the hope, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's the only hope. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we can't enter into those conversations, who can? So I want to encourage you. Find your Jericho Road, right? Find that, that red and bloody road. Find that road that's it's taking you to places that are uncomfortable t- towards you. right? Because it's easy for us to just to live in our lanes around people who are just like us rather than saying, no, let me go to these places where the people are different from me, where, where I don't understand them, where it's a bit uncomfortable, and I've got to learn something. Right? Church, we need to be in those places. We need to courageously go to those places, and we need to courageously serve in those places. We need to courageously have conversations about things that we don't understand or are different from our experience. I will tell you, for me personally, I love going to those places because people who are different from me are more interesting than I am. It's more interesting because I'm always learning. You know, I have have an older friend, this lady, and uh, I remember years ago she told me that every morning she would wake up and she would hold her hands open before the Lord, and she'd say, Lord... Today is your day. I have my planner next to me, and this is what I'm, I, I think should happen. But Lord, the day belongs to you, and you're going to bring opportunities. You're going to bring, bring, bring moments that seem like interruptions, but really this is my moment, my opportunity to step in what you have planned for me for this day. So Lord, I give you my entire day. So her eyes were open and receptive and, and anxious to see how God would screw up her day, Right? Remember, there's another story in the same city in Jericho where Jesus is walking along and this blind man is is yelling and screaming after them, right? Saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And his disciples, right, the very spiritual men that they are, what do they say? Jesus, tell him to shut up. And Jesus says, what you think is an annoyance, 
I see as an opportunity. That's the point of the day. Let's stop. And he goes to the man, and he feels compassion for him. He says, what do you need? What do you need? What do you want me to do for you? And he says, I've been blind from birth. Lord, let me see. And Jesus heals him and gives him sight. Because he was in an uncomfortable place, and there was an annoyance, something that pulled him off of the schedule. And he allowed himself to be moved with compassion, and he showed love. Right? Let yourself be taken to those places. Do something. Second, do something in the name of Jesus. Um, you know, we're, we're the church, so we're better than the Peace Corps. We have something to offer that, that the Peace Corps can't offer, right? Anybody can dig a well, and anybody can build a house, and anybody can put food in people's mouths, but we have the gospel. So often what connects us to people is there's an immediate need. It might be physical, it might be financial, it might be material, it might be emotional. That's, that's the initial connecting point, and that's what people are feeling the most acute need. But what do people need more than anything else? They need to be reconciled to God. They need the gospel, right? So, so dig the well in the name of Jesus, right? Feed the poor in the name of Jesus. Build the house, but do it in the name of Jesus. You've got to get to the gospel, church, because that's the one thing that sets us apart. So if you feed people or clothe them or give them a home, but you never get to the gospel, you haven't actually done good because you've left them short. Their greatest need is eternal life and to be reconciled to God. So find those physical needs, find those financial needs, find those those emotional needs, but also meet the spiritual need, right? Get to the gospel because that's the greatest gift that we have to offer. Third, do something and then stop doing something. Do something and then stop doing something. Find that rhythm of life. Because, you know what, you can't do everything. And it's overwhelming, the needs. But you're not responsible to do everything. You're just responsible to do something. And you're responsible to do something and then stop doing something. Even Jesus didn't do everything, right? He lived in a human body. He had 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He only did ministry on earth three years. He had to stop and he had to eat and he had to sleep. He had to, I mean, he had to, he had to refresh himself. And so sometimes he'd be giving and giving and giving and he'd say to his disciples, we need to come away and rest. I need to rest and you need to rest. There's a great story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is he's preaching and he's healing and apparently he went all night long. It goes into the wee hours of the morning and finally Jesus is able to pull away for a while and he's by himself and, and his disciples, they, they search everywhere and they find him. They say, Jesus, let's go. It's time to get going again. The people are back at the door of the house. We need to do more ministry. And Jesus says, we're out. He says, we're out. Time to go to a new city. And he left some people disappointed. They didn't get to hear Jesus preach. They didn't get healed by Jesus. He didn't, he didn't get to all of them. Why? Because he lived in the limitations of humanity. He only discipled 12 guys. He didn't disciple everyone. He didn't even travel outside of Israel. Because we're not responsible for everything. So you do something, but then you stop, and you find that rhythm. What's interesting about this story, uh, if you want to continue on reading later on this afternoon, is Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan, and literally it's like, I mean, he just, it, you, can, you can almost sense it. it. He just drops the mic, and it's silent. Samaritan's the hero. Priest and Levite get tagged. Jesus steps off. And where does he go? We're told he immediately goes to the house of Mary and Martha. 
And he sits down and he begins to teach. And Mary is seated at his feet. And what's Martha doing? Scurry, 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 right? Work, 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 work. She's doing all kinds of stuff. And Jesus says, Martha, chill. (laughs) Martha, Martha. Mary's chosen the best thing for this moment. She's just sitting at my feet. Martha, just come sit. Stop. You're doing, 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 doing. You're a compulsive doer. Just, just stop. You need to find the rhythm. You're out of rhythm. For this moment, Mary's chosen the good part. Now, this is the same Mary who would later take that vial of perfume, break its neck, and pour out the, the, the nard on Jesus' feet and wipe his feet with her hair, right, and create this incredible, awkward scene and the disciples, in, again, in their really spiritual moment, they say, why this waste? What could have been done with this, basically a year's salary of perfume? They say, you know, what we should have done is sold that and given the money to the poor, right? Because you should always do good. And Jesus says, hey, you always have the poor with you. You don't always have me. For this moment, Mary chose the good thing. Jesus was not saying you should never do good for the poor. He was saying in this moment... This is what you should do. Now you should worship. And she worshiped. What's interesting is Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15 in the law. Moses said, the poor you will always have with you. Therefore, be generous to the poor. See the balance? The poor you will always have with you, and so you can't do everything, but you should do something. And don't write it off and say, where do I set the boundary? The boundary is no boundary, right? Anyone who is near and in need is your neighbor, but you can't go forever. You need to do good and then rest. And you do good and then rest. Do good and then rest. Because that's what even Jesus did. He set that pattern for us. And so uh, this morning, it may be some of you need to just, you need to just rest, right? You need to just sit at Jesus' feet and you need to worship. And maybe you need to take a nap. Most spiritual thing for you would just be take a nap, right? Because you're compulsive and you're going, 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 going. And maybe it's because you feel like you haven't done enough or maybe because you think you earn God's favor. You know what? God loves you whether you never do a good deed again in your life. Because he loves you in Jesus. That's radical grace. Isn't that crazy? So some of you may just need to stop and rest and worship and be refreshed by the Lord. Some of you need to get on a Jericho road and get really uncomfortable. Because you're just staying in your lane. And you're not being stretched and you're not serving and you're not around people who are different from you. Right? And so what God is saying to you this morning is, you're, you need to go to an uncomfortable place. And you need to be stirred up and stretched. Or for some of you it may be, you just need to find the rhythm. You, you believe in both of those things, but, but you haven't found the rhythm in life. Maybe too much work or maybe too much rest. And you're just finding the rhythm. I know this, that because of Jesus, he has set his affections on you and he cares for absolutely every one of you. And because God is omniscient in this moment, he can be actively thinking about each and every one of you and pouring out his love upon you. And he wants to say something specific to each and every one of us. So maybe this morning it is for you, hey, I want you to rest. Or maybe it is you've gotten far too comfortable and I want you to stretch and sacrifice in the name of Jesus. Or maybe it's I want you to find your rhythm. And so what I'd like for us to do as we close is just take a few moments quietly before the Lord and ask him to speak specifically to you. What is it the Lord wants to say to you as his child, as his son or his daughter this morning? And then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that none of us would leave this morning unchanged. Maybe it's in a large way, maybe it's just in a small way, but I pray that your spirit would bring a really deep conviction and courage. I pray, Father, we would, we would let you change us. 
whether that's going deeper in rest and worship so that we, we serve out of the abundance and not out of deficit, or whether it's that we allow you to, to stretch us and, and put us in uncomfortable places where we don't know what to do. Father, I pray that we would not allow ourselves to be unchanged. Father, I pray that we would learn to love out of a place of fullness, not, not mere duty or obligation, not out of a, set, a sense of compulsion that we have to earn anything from you, but instead out of a sense of security and safety that we're completely and utterly loved in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would give us those opportunities even this week to, to love our neighbors, who just people who are near, maybe people we've never met before. We love in such a way that it's so supernatural that these people have to say, what's different about this? No one ever loved me like this. I pray, Father, you give us opportunities to get to the gospel. Pray that we wouldn't come up short. We'd have courage to speak the words of life in Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd add to our number those who are right now far away, but you'd bring them near and you'd make them close and a part of the body of Christ through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you. Have a great week being good neighbors. See you next week.